All right. Well, I'm grateful to be here with you guys again tonight. I think now it's been about the last year, year and a half that I've, when I've had the chance to fill in for Pastor Greg. Um, we've been going through First Peter. I think it's probably about the tenth uh, message now out of First Peter, and I've really enjoyed it. Um, this theme of exiles, living as exiles in this world as God's people, uh, and the theme of uh, of hope throughout the letter, it's really encouraging. And we will continue with that theme tonight uh, of hope in the midst of suffering as we look at 1 Peter chapter 3. And we'll be closing out that chapter in verses 18 through 20. So, like I said, we'll be speaking about hope tonight. And I would ask you, as you sit here tonight, do you see yourself here tonight as someone who, like me, needs to be reminded of the hope that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. Has this past week, this past month, or the past year been a struggle? I know for some it has. Has life been hard for you? And are you stumbling in here tonight feeling beat up, bruised, or broken? Do you need a fresh reminder of that hope that is our God tonight? Because I know I do. I do. I need that reminder every single day. And so do you. So do all of us. And even if you come here tonight and you're saying to yourself, Mike, I'm good on the hope. I pretty much got my hope tank filled up to the brim. Well, then I would say to you that you may just need to listen a little closer tonight. Because you may not be desperate for hope, but I guarantee you that there is someone in your life who is. And I will also guarantee you that you will be soon, too, at one point or another. I tell the men at the, res at the rescue mission all the time that, yes, you're going through a tremendously difficult time right now. Yes, you need a place where you can find refuge, where you can find recovery and restoration. Yes, you need those things. You need to be delivered from your circumstances, and you need recovery. But there is something that you need more, and that is hope. And I'm telling you all here tonight the very same thing. You may feel like the biggest need in your life is a dozen different things. Whether that be financial stability, physical healing, a better marriage, a better job, freedom from addiction, the list goes on. But I'm here to remind you tonight that what you need and what I need most tonight and every other waking moment is hope. Yes, we all need hope because we all suffer. And we need a hope for when we're in the midst of our suffering so we can endure, so we could suffer well, as we talked about last time when I was with you guys. And we need a hope that reminds us that it will not always be like this. We will not always have to suffer. 
Suffering, though it is universal, it's a universal experience that we share with all of the world. It is also a temporary experience for the believer in Jesus Christ. And praise God for that. So I pray and I ask the Lord that as we turn to our passage tonight, that our time spent together would be one that is filled with hope and encouragement for all those that are here tonight. Because this passage that we will be looking at tends to be one of those passages that is rather confusing when first read. It is a passage that has been the focus of a lot of debate and many well-respected pastors and theologians and lay Christians alike have disagreed on some of the interpretive details of the passage. And my fear coming into this sermon tonight was that I'd get so bogged down in the interpretive dilemma and the disagreements that I'd miss the God-intended purpose of this passage. And that God-intended purpose is hope. Hope for the believer who has endured suffering for their union with Christ. Peter, in tonight's passage, will be pointing his audience and us to an example that we have in the life of Christ. And then he'll show us from the life of Noah the example that was set. And we'll see that just as the Lord was faithful to Noah, just as he was faithful to his divine son, he will be and he promises to be faithful to all his children. And what we need to be reminded of tonight is that though suffering, persecution, and mockery may be the calling of those who follow Jesus, our hope in those times is the fact that we are still children of God and the Father will vindicate his children. Just as he vindicated Noah in the Old Testament, and just as he vindicated Jesus in the New Testament, just as he will vindicate the audience of 1 Peter, he will one day vindicate us. When it comes to the suffering of his children for their faith in Christ, the Father sees and he knows and he is not happy and he will vindicate us. So let's read from the Word of God and be reminded of this sweet hope that we have in him as his children. We're going to pick it up in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, can you see, as we just read through that passage, how it could seem a bit confusing and kind of cause you to scratch your head and ask yourself, what in the heck is Peter talking about here? Now, tonight, for the sake of time and our sanity, I will not be going over all the different interpretations of this passage that God-honoring, 
Jesus-loving, Bible-believing, lay Christians, pastors, and theologians have came up with and gracefully disagreed with, with each other over. You may have your own interpretation of this passage tonight, and you may disagree with my position, and that's great. And I love you, even though you're wrong. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, but if you are interested in studying up on this passage, I, I, have some, I have some great resources, and I'd be happy to loan them to you as you study and decide for yourself what you believe this passage is, is saying. But back to 1 Peter. And 1 Peter starts off in verse 18 by stating that Christ also suffered. Let those words sink in. Let them have their full effect on your heart this evening. Christ, our God, the creator of all that is seen and unseen. The one who is holding all of creation together by his power. The only one who is truly holy, truly righteous, perfect in every way. Christ also suffered to the point of death. He knows grace. He knows what it is like. He's not just the God who is sovereign over our suffering, but he's experienced it himself. He's not only sympathetic to our plight, he's empathetic. We are sharing in his experience of suffering. So you may say, okay, Mike, I get it. Christ suffered, I'm suffering, we're fellow sufferers, yada, yada, yada. Where's the hope in that? The Christian life is not merely just to suffer, correct? Here's where the hope is. Christ proclaimed a message that caused him to suffer mockery and rejection from his own people. He suffered a horrible beating and died painfully and shamefully on a Roman cross like a common thief. And the Father vindicated him. And how do you think Noah felt? All those years spent building the ark, surrounded by unbelievers who mocked and ridiculed him for his obedience to God, mocking him because his act of obedience was a proclamation of the judgment that was to come. An ark built for the coming deluge, the coming flood that was to come to a people on a planet that had never experienced rain before. Imagine what that was like for Noah and his family. I'm pretty sure it's safe to say that if the, the, the message being proclaimed to those around them, they were, they probably, Noah and his family probably weren't being invited over people's houses for barbecues and to watch the game. They were probably the least favorite people in their neighborhood. And though Noah and his family suffered for their faith and obedience to God, the Father vindicated them. And though Jesus suffered for his obedience to the Father, the Father vindicated him. And just as the exiles Peter is addressing here are experiencing suffering to their obedience to Christ, and just as we can count on experiencing some suffering for our faith in Christ, we too can rest assured that our Father in the heaven sees, he knows, 
He's not happy about how the world may treat us, and he will vindicate us. That is the example we have set before us in this passage. But it's also far more than just an example. Because though an example is helpful, we need far more than just an example. I have no hope for myself, and I have no hope to give you if all I give you, or all Peter had given his audience, was just an example or a pattern to follow. We need more. We need a Redeemer. We need a Savior. We need a substitute. It says in verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now reading that, I could tell you that's better than just an example or just a pattern to follow. I can't ultimately find hope in only an example. I need to find hope in a person. And that person better be perfect in every way because I am desperately wicked and sinful on my own. And so are you. And so is everyone else who ever walked this earth except for one. His name is Jesus Christ. And he is our hope. The Father sent his Son to be the perfect and final sacrifice that, one, that would once and for all take care of the problem of sin and death for those who would be called the children of the Father. He lived the life that we could never live, and he died the death that we all deserve. The Father poured the full weight of wrath that was meant for you and me onto his Son and crushed him. And it pleased the Father to do so. His wrath and his anger was satisfied at the cross. And the Father raised him up in triumph. He vindicated him. And by grace through faith, the Son now takes us by the hand and he is leading us to our God. Not kicking and screaming as rebels who are on their way to judgment from a judge, but as adopted children en route to their inheritance from a loving father. We're promised a seat at his table for all eternity. He, through the substitutionary work of Christ, has drawn us into his family. Our God is our father. And he loves his children. Think about that truth and how it would affect those that Peter was talking to in this letter. Like Noah, like Christ, these were people who were suffering for the message that they proclaimed. They were being mocked and rejected by their own people, their own community, their own family members. And Peter points them to the fact that this is the common experience for the people of God. Are you getting some sideways glances from, for your faith in Christ? Are you feeling some rejection because of your faith in God? Misunderstood, misrepresented, 
family members, neighbors, and co-workers giving you the cold shoulder? Or worse, mocking you, threatening you? You can be rejected and mistreated by everyone you know, but there is one who has accepted you and loves you more than you know. Our Heavenly Father loves us. He loves you. He's accepted you tonight. The triune God of the universe calls you family. Is that not amazing? Doesn't the gospel just blow your mind? Don't ever get used to hearing about the amazing love and grace that our Heavenly Father has shown us through His Son, Jesus Christ. It's the hope that we cling to in our suffering and in every moment of our lives. We are His children and He will vindicate us. What awaits us is an eternity spent with Him. And that cannot compare to this light and momentary affliction, as the Apostle Paul says. Our pain, our suffering, our afflictions, they're real and they hurt. But our hope will outlast our trouble. Let's pick it up in verses 19 through 20. He says, In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Okay, so to clarify my position on this portion of the passage, I want you to know that what I believe Peter is saying here is that the Spirit of Christ was preaching through Noah a message or a proclamation of judgment and repentance to Noah's contemporaries. And the ark itself being the message of judgment and calling to repentance. Now you may say to me, Mike, how the heck is, are you telling me is that Christ or Christ's spirit is preaching or speaking through Noah? And I will respond to you by saying, it's not me who is saying it. I'm simply repeating what the Bible itself is saying. And if we go back just a couple chapters in this very same book, to chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, we'll see evidence of this. In chapter 1, starting in verse 10, it says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now on this topic, Wayne Grudem writes, Peter elsewhere mentions ideas similar to the thought that Christ is said to have preached through Noah. For the Spirit of Christ is said to have been active in the prophets of the Old Testament era. So just so we're clear, I'm saying Christ, through his Spirit, was preaching a message of judgment and repentance through Noah. And that message which was proclaimed by the lips of Noah and through his obedience uh, in building the ark in the midst of an unbelieving population who mocked and ridiculed him. This unbelieving population, I will say, because I believe it's true, are the spirits in prison that Peter mentions here in this verse. Now you might say to me, Mike, if these spirits are in prison... How come Peter doesn't just simply, or if these spirits in prison are simply just unbelievers in Noah's day, 
Why doesn't Peter just refer to them as unbelievers or unrighteous people or wicked people? Again, I like what Paul Tripp says in his explanation because Paul Tripp and Wayne Groom, they're smarter than me and what they say makes sense. <laughs> Paul Tripp here says, well, it's, very, it's a very common way of speaking. When we talk, we mix history. You'll say the queen was born in 1925. You've mixed history because she wasn't the queen in 1925. But you know that people will understand what you're talking about. You don't have to say the person who has now become the queen but wasn't the queen then was born in 1925 because you know that people will understand that. And so these people who were rebellious and mockers and rejected the message of God's servant are now the spirits in prison who are awaiting the final judgment. So once again, put yourself in Noah's shoes or his sandals. Rain had never fallen from the sky ever before that point in time. Yet you're preaching to those around you that God is going to judge the sin of the world by this thing called a flood where water falls from the sky and springs from the earth and it's going to fill up the whole earth and it's going to kill anyone who doesn't repent and trust the message of God by jumping into this big old ark thingy. <laughs> God was calling Noah to suffer for his obedience to God. For 120 years, Noah proclaimed that message, building that ark, and suffered mockery and ridicule for it. And then the flood came. And every nail that Noah and his family hammered into that ship, every beam that they put in place, the blood, the sweat, and the tears that they spilled in the construction process was validated. And Noah and his family were vindicated and saved. The father vindicates his children. Peter will go on in the last couple of verses of this chapter to say that just as Noah and his family were vindicated by the Father, we too are being vindicated as the Spirit is working in us and through us and for us. We pick it up in verses 21 through 22. It says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now what in the world is Peter saying? What does he mean when he says baptism now saves you? Why would he say that? Is he just trying to make our time in this passage more difficult? I thought Peter said that Paul was the hard one to understand. This passage makes Peter look like he's aiming for that title. <laughs> we know that baptism itself is not a salvific act. It doesn't save anyone. But why would Peter go and say this? Does he like to stress preachers out? Does he want us in our study time to be scratching our heads in frustration? No, not at all. William Barclay, in a, in a biblical theological introduction to the New Testament, says, what we have here is an example of what theologians call sacramental union. Because of the close relationship between the sign, which is baptism, and the thing signified, which is salvation, 
Biblical writers can sometimes virtually equate the sign with what it signifies. Peter's point here is that the physical salvation of Noah and his family through the, through the flood prefigures the waters of baptism and the salvation they signify. I'll say it again. Peter's point here is that the physical salvation of Noah and his family through the flood prefigures the waters of baptism and the salvation that they signify. So was it the ark carrying Noah and his family through the flood waters that ultimately saved Noah? No. It was God's grace that saved Noah and his family. God had made a promise to Noah and his family, and God kept that promise. And the fact that God worked in and through Noah and his family through the construction of the ark, the fact that God sustained them through the suffering and through the flood waters is further evidence of God's goodness and faithfulness to Noah and his family. Just as the free gift of salvation can't be gained through baptism or any other work done by man, it can only be done by God as he works in and through and for messy, wicked sinners like you and me. As he convicts us of our sin and leads us to repentance and faith in Christ, he brings us into covenant with him. He cleanses us and calls us his own. Our baptism points to what God has done for us and the promise that he has made to us as his children. Promises to see us through and to sustain us through the pain and the suffering in this world that comes with being a member of his family. That comes from proclaiming a message of repentance and faith in Christ alone. That message that brings life to God's people is also the message that brings suffering and persecution to the very same people. And so we're reminded by the waters of baptism and through the waters of baptism that our God is faithful. Our Father will vindicate his children. And verse 22 tells us that we have a Savior that has gone before us and is reigning and ruling over all things for our good. He's interceding for us. We don't need to worry. We don't need to fear the world and what they may do to us. Because Jesus is on the throne and nothing can thwart what he has set out to accomplish. We are in union with him forever. And nothing can separate us from the love of God. Ever. Like nothing ever will. Okay? Literally nothing. Nothing I do, nothing you do, nothing the world does to us, or nothing that Satan tries to do. Nothing. The Father will have, and He will vindicate His children. He will not lose one of them. So where, what, who is your hope in tonight? Where have you placed your hope? When suffering comes your way, when trouble comes a-knocking, where do you look for hope? It could be different for each and every person here tonight. But I'll tell you this, if you're not looking to Christ and His finished work, and what he has accomplished for broken, messy, filthy sinners like me and you. If you're not finding your hope in him, then I will tell you right now, your hope is weak 
and it is impotent, and it will not sustain you. No created thing was meant to bear the weight and the load of what only Christ can give you. Your hope must be found in him. Him, He alone will sustain you in the darkest and most painful times of your life. And you do not want to cross over that threshold of eternity without holding his hand. If you haven't, will you trust in Jesus tonight? Will you place your hope in him? Will you reach out with the empty hands of faith and collapse into his arms? But what about those of us here tonight who have trusted in the Lord? Maybe we need to be reminded that just as when we first believed, we need to find our hope in him by simply collapsing in his arms over and over and over again. As we go out to proclaim this message of grace to a fallen, sin-sick world, we need to be reminded that it is in the resting in what he has done for us that empowers us to go and proclaim this unpopular message. It's in Christ and the grace and the power provided that emboldens us to live for him day in and day out. That as we seek to obey him, we are resting in the fact that we are already accepted by Christ's perfect obedience on our behalf. Grace, preach the gospel to yourselves every day and to each other for as long as you live. Remind yourself of the redemption that is taking place in you and around you as a member of the family of God. Lives are being transformed here at Grace, even now as we gather. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved by the grace of God. Yeah, persecution may come, and as a worldwide church, it it will come. Suffering for Christ in this world is inevitable for the people of God. But none of that will last. Everything evil is temporary, but God and his word are eternal. Everything sad and everything painful will one day pass away, and all that will remain is our God and his people living together in a new creation with Jesus as our king. The Father will vindicate his children once and for all. He is our hope. Let us pray. Father, you are a covenant-keeping God. When you make a covenant promise to your people, you keep it. You are always faithful to us despite our unfaithfulness whether by our thoughts or our deeds, we disobey your commands, we violate your statutes, and we do this many times over the course of a single day. If there is anything as constant as your faithfulness, it's our fickleness. Our guilt before you is sure and inarguable. Still, you lavish your grace and mercy on us. Your steadfast love for us, displayed in the work of your Son, is proof of that. 
Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness on our behalf. We thank you for keeping covenant with your Father. Your perfect obedience is now our perfect obedience. You were the righteous one who suffered and died for the unrighteous many. And you sit on a heavenly throne now in glory, reigning and ruling for the benefit of your people, and we behold you by faith. You alone are worthy. Holy Spirit, when suffering comes our way, when we want to give in to weakness and fear, cause us to see Christ as our sure and only hope. May he alone be the comfort and refuge that we seek in the storm above all other false hopes. Remind us that in our time of sorrow, this man of sorrows has made full atonement for us and has brought us into the family of God. Help us to be steadfast and faithful in the hardest of times, casting our eyes and our hope to the day when we will be brought safely home into the presence of our glorious King. In your name we pray. Amen.